I think one of the problems we have is we don't have a, I think especially in functional medicine and even in the world of clinical nutrition, it is we have lots of theories and lots of philosophies. So it's like the theory and philosophy drives the protocol mm. or we have bias from the personal, the practitioner, their bias is driving the protocol, but it's not a systematic work through every piece of this piece by piece by piece by piece and diff out each part of the things that can go wrong and then think about what intervention to do. So that's, that's the difference. That's the difference between skilled functional medicine approach versus a beginner, right? Welcome to the Metagenics Institute podcast, a place where you can hear from leading experts in health and wellness, from scientists and researchers to internationally recognized clinicians. Enjoy this insightful conversation with host Nathan Rose. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Metagenics Institute podcast. I'm your host, Nathan Rose, and I'm very pleased to have joining me on the line is Dr. Datis Karizian. Or Dr. K, as you prefer, is it? Anything works. <laughs> Anything works. Well, welcome, um, Dardis. And we've got you here today to talk about gut health and, and also promote your fantastic resources and institute. Um, so first of all, for those who don't know, you're, you're a well-known figure in the industry, but some may not be familiar with you. So could you just give us a bit of a background on who you are and, and what you specialize in? Yes, I'm a functional medicine practitioner. Uh, I'm a DC. I'm also a PhD and a doctor of science. I'm a researcher right now at Harvard Medical School in the Department of Neurology at Mass General Hospital. And I'm associate uh, clinical professor at Loma Linda University School of Medicine. So I actually um, treat patients uh, one, you know, one week and then I write and do research the other week. And I have an educational institute called the Cross Institute where we teach functional medicine practitioners um, throughout the world. Brilliant. So yeah, um, that real great balance between research and and working with patients. Do, and do you specialize in treating any patients that the autoimmunity gut issues? Yeah, I mean, for me, the patients I see that we have like a two year waiting list, so they're usually all chronic, nothing really acute, and it's mostly things like uh, autoimmune diseases, uh, unnamed conditions, uh, unrecovering head trauma types of scenarios, people with complex pain syndromes, complex fatigue syndromes, uh, you know, stuff where functional medicine really seems to have a nice effect. Yeah, right. And I imagine these patients then, if they're, you know, willing to wait several years, they're probably the, it's the last last resort. Um, they've, they've often exhausted many other methods. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think for most functional medicine people, you know, <laughs> they're all seeing the stack of list of vials of, all the people they've seen and, you know, and uh, I think it's a common thing for everyone who's practicing functional medicine these days. Everyone's seeing a lot of chronic patients that have gone through one practitioner to the next, to the next, all with their like simple, simple linear model. And it's like the care isn't really personalized for the patient. The the practitioner has their model and they're hoping the patient will respond in their model. Mm. And then I think that's one of the areas, and even within functional medicine, you have functional medicine practitioners, let's say the gut, they go, oh, we always start with the gut. And, and that could be a failing model for many cases. So uh, if you're practicing functional medicine and you have a protocol you put everyone on, then you're not doing personalized medicine or personalized functional medicine. You kind of have your philosophy and you have been trying to fit people into a philosophy. So because of that, I think all of us in functional medicine are seeing you know, people with these long lists of practitioners they've seen and... Uh, I think it's a comment. It's going to continue. People are continuing mm-hmm. to get sick. Yeah. 
Um, and what struck me about your approach was, as you just mentioned, like often uh, the practitioner has their favorite protocol or, or supplement or program and it's sort of a, a protocol-centric approach where um, with your strong um, background in in diagnostics and um, patient care, it seems like a real sort of um, open-minded diagnostic sort of led approach. Can you better explain that? Yeah, I think you know when you really look at the, the concept of bias, like in, in the in your in the research world, you're constantly trying to find all different types of bias, right? Uh, everything from selection bias to data bias to journal bias and everything, and it's like that's how that's how you think as a researcher. And we got to remember that as clinicians, we have biases. And one of the common things that happens to biases is practitioners, they tend to specialize in things that have helped them. So if you see a practitioner who had adrenal fatigue syndrome and did adrenal support and they feel better, then they start looking for that with all their patients. If you had a patient that responded to a certain leaky gut protocol or whatever the condition may be, then they go, okay, well, that worked for me. It's got to work for my patient. Or that didn't work for me, so I'm looking for their patient. And that immediately like decreases your clinical skills and ability, ability to help patients because now your bias is in the way. Mm. So I can say as a person who's been teaching functional medicine for over 20 years all over the world, basically, um, it's basically the same thing. So, and it typically happens is when people get into functional medicine is, you know, they got sick or family member got sick, but let's say it's scenario they got sick and maybe doing heavy metal chelation or maybe dealing with mold really made a difference for their health. Then they become those experts, but then they don't really diversify any other things. And then their ability to evaluate a case without bias really gets in their way of, of, of proper workup. Mm. So I think that's one of the big problems we have is we, we don't think about our own biases, but our own biases can really get in the way of a proper workup. Yeah. Nate, um, you've got your course on gastrointestinal health and it's very extensive and I encourage um, listeners to, to look into that. Um, what struck me was, yeah, obviously it's so extensive, but there was a, a few threads there that you just mentioned. Before we dive into the detail, yeah, is there a sort of overarching message you have around how to approach gut conditions? Yeah, so I think when people are like starting with functional medicine, the first thing is they find everything. They're looking, oh my, oh my God, they have leaky gut. Oh my God, they have food sensitivities. Oh goodness, they have toxic chemicals that are high. And and if you work with chronic patients, they're all going to have everything. Mm. They're all going to have some degree of something, right? So they're going to have a little bit of a blood sugar issue, a little bit of unhealthy gut, a little bit of, you know, whatever. So maybe not every single person with everyone, but you're going to find quite a bit of stuff that's off in the functional spectrum of things, right? Not disease, but off the functional spectrum. And I think that's where you start. But we'll really... Uh, Experience functional medicine people, it's not about finding stuff. It's about prioritizing. So really, that's the big difference. So when you see, like as a healthcare professional, as a functional medicine practitioner, when I see a patient come in and they have had thousands and thousands of dollars worth of lab tests and they're taking 20, 30, 40 supplements, not knowing why anymore, you're going, you know, it's, it's pretty clear that the person who worked with them didn't know how to prioritize and they were just trying to fix whatever they could and they're just throwing everything at it. And that's a failed model. And we have a lot of that in functional medicine. So what I've learned, you know, for myself throughout my career, it's really all about figuring out priorities. Like when you have a web of all these things mm -hmm. that are off, how do you pull on the web to have the greatest impact and then kind of work your way through the case? So that's like, I think the the advanced level of functional medicine. The advanced level of functional medicine is not that you find everything and treat everything. The advanced functional medicine is you find everything, but then you figure out how to pull on that web of 
all these different things to have an effect on multiple areas of the web with once and being efficiency in your care. And the gut's the same way. So, you you know, the, the gastrointestinal tract has a priority um, in, in the sense that you have to treat it, as we say, north to south is a common term we use, meaning that if you just jump into the microbiome, you may not be able to get much results because the microbiome is influenced by your ability to just proteins and to break down fats and to have uh, enteric nervous system activity and get blood flow there and circulation there and lots of things impact the microbiome. So that's the concept uh, when it comes to the gut, for example, as we look at hierarchies, there is there is a hierarchy of things to go through to, to make sure that the physiological process, when you actually get to the GI tract, is healthy. Yeah, yeah, I really love that um, idea about prioritizing because it can be quite overwhelming and yeah, as you said, sometimes it feels like practitioners might be playing a bit of whack-a-mole when a lab pops up and it's leaky gut, so I'll treat that. And then there's SIBO or something, they'll treat that, but looking for those underlying drivers, um, which is um, sometimes more difficult than, than you might think. Um, before we dive into that north and south, uh, one thing that I really um, appreciated was your acknowledgement of, um, of, you know, as you mentioned, our sort of modus operandi is the gut is a seat of health but sometimes it's the consequence of poor health and um there can be gut symptoms but doesn't necessarily mean it's coming from the gut or there could be other other drivers you've got a couple um red flags that i think uh, i had not really sort of considered much before um that can obviously manifest in the gut but doesn't necessarily mean it's caused by the gut um can you step through some of those um probably lesser known factors that um practitioners may not be aware of could be driving gut conditions yeah so you know one of the things is it does make sense for a lot of people to start with food start with digestion making sure they can assimilate and digest foods and as a way to improve their health that's that's obvious i mean that's very essential so that being said there's also patients that come in have have done everything for their gut have taken every student nutritional for their gut and their diet is very clean and they're eating really well and they still have chronic gastrointestinal issues so, and, and let's say that scenario, it's really clear that the gut is not functioning because of other factors, right? So to constantly go in and try to do the same thing over and over again is really clinical inefficiency, right? And at the end of the day, as a clinician, like we only have so much time with the patient. Uh, they're going to trust us or not trust us. They're, there's, there's a point where they go, okay, I'll give you some time. Can you figure this out? And then if you kind of blow it and you don't get to the right thing right away or have patient understand it, like you don't have practice you don't have mm -hmm. so it's really essential like when those patients come in that have tried everything to not waste time and then kind of go to other factors that could be there so um you know the gut uh and it depends on what part of the gut we're talking about are we talking about like motility or the is there chief complaint constipation because motility can be impacted by thyroid hormones motility can be impacted by neurodegenerative disease right motility can be impacted by methane and hydrogen from SIBO or is it just constant distension and bloating, which is maybe more of a fermentation issue? Is it both? Is it problems um, with bowel frequency, right? You know, so, you know, ultimately, those are the things we kind of go through in the clinical model. But uh, it's just to realize that sometimes the gut is really impacted by many other things. Like, for example, one of the most common causes of hypothyroidism is just chronic constipation. Right. <laughs> so thyroid hormones activate the smooth muscles of the gut. So you have contraction and motility and movement. And if, if you don't have motility, then um, 
you're going to have fermentation. Then you have bloating and distension, and then you can have patterns that look like SIBO, but they're actually hypothyroid. Uh, thyroid hormones impact uh, autonomic receptors where they're involved with releasing hormones. They impact gallbladder contraction. So you can have someone who's got, if you test a comprehensive digestive stool analysis, they'll have all the signs of maldigestion and malabsorption and dysbiosis. It's all because they're not moving their food. And then the minute they get on thyroid hormones, lots of things finally start mm. to change and they may start responding to their protocol. And these patients that have hypothyroidism start in the gut, many of them don't have any hypothyroid symptoms. Like they don't have the weight gain, they don't have the thinning eyebrows and the hair loss and all those. The only chief complaint is constipation. So so those are like mechanisms that are very important um, to, to know about and to quickly look for when you see that red flag patient. Also, neurodegeneration. Neurodegeneration is really common. <laughs> it's more common than people think. And, and many times neurodegeneration starts in the gut. So as the enteric nervous system degenerates away and can't function well, same thing. There's decreased motility, gallbladders can't contract, intestines can't move, valves can't close, and then you get the whole clinical clear picture of dysbiosis, SIBO, enzyme deficiency, intestinal permeability, but they're all caused because of lack of enteric nervous system activity and making these things contract and move, right, and, and release uh, enzymes and get blood flow to the gut. So I think that is a really important skill practitioners should really make sure they hone down on and, and know the thought process and, and how to work through uh, mechanisms like that. Yeah, fascinating. Can you describe a bit more about um, uh, early neuro, uh, neurodegenerative disease and, and Parkinson's? It, it sounds yeah. like you have detected um, several or many cases of this. What does it look like and what's the, the pathophysiology there? Yeah, so with Parkinson's, first of all, you have to understand, Parkinson's doesn't start with tremor. Tremor is 20 years into Parkinson's. So by the time someone has tremors, like they're pretty progressed. So the, the initial Parkinsonian manifestation is actually in two areas. It's in the olfactory bulb and it's in the enteric nervous system. So um, in Parkinson's disease, there's, it's a neurodegenerative process where they get protein aggregates called alpha-synuclein Lewy bodies that build up. And... Um, those get in the way, those protein aggregates get in the way of normal neurotransmission. So when neurons kind of activate each other, you just get atrophy. And this starts in the gastrointestinal nervous system, the enteric nervous system first, with Parkinson's patients. So one of the initial manifestations of Parkinson's patients, before they get tremor, before they get uh, stiffness and rigidity and mass face and all those, is just chronic constipation. And then, again, as before, once their enteric nervous system doesn't work, they lose motility, they lose movement, then they get fermentation and bloating and dysbiosis and leaky gut and all the things that go from that unhealthy environment just because they're not contracting their intestines and muscles. And a big clue that a person has enteric nervous system dysfunction is if they take things like fiber, they get dramatically worse because the fiber is too much for the gut. They can't move it. And actually some of these patients develop what are called fecoliths where the fiber like impacts their gut and they get a stone and they can't move it and then they get much, much worse and they have these major problems with it. Another big, another big clue is that someone's having enteric nervous system degeneration is they can't swallow. They'll be the one patients that come in and go, hey, can you give me some powders or liquids? I really can't take capsules. I prefer not to. And you're like, why? And they're like, I just just don't like swallowing or I don't prefer them. And when you dig deeper, you find out, wow, they, they really have a vagal issue, right? You can actually check their palate and say, oh, you can see if the palate moves. You can check their gag reflexes. They may be not so great. So those are all part of looking at the, the vagal, the, the window of the vagus. And you can, you know, listen, pick up your stethoscope and listen to their abdomen. And if you, have, if you start doing that on a regular basis, you'll hear what normal gut function is. 
And then you also will hear when the gut's not firing and it's not moving and there's not very little activity there. So, you know, red flag, patient comes in, they've taken every single supplement, they can't handle fiber, they want to take liquids and powders because they can't swallow capsules, their gag reflex isn't that great, doesn't the admin doesn't sound well, you may be looking at early neurodegenerative conditions. And uh, you're not going to get far with protocols for the gut. And as a matter of fact, you, protocols of gut are going to be absolutely necessary so they can function. Mm. And now you may have a bigger problem to deal with, which is the neurodegenerative side of things, right? Yeah. And then they also, and they also found that the um, smell pathways are impacted because the buildup of alpha-synuclein that happens in the gut also happens in the olfactory bulb. Mm. So they then researchers have found that there's three scents that people lose with Parkinson's disease first, and it's coffee, anise, and peppermint. So hmm. you should you should definitely test coffee, anise, and peppermint in your office, and see if those are off and they can't smell those, and you see gut motility issues. Like you're dealing with something else, and this is why other people are failing with this gut issue. And I think the GI module we actually have a we go over real case studies with real patients, and, and we go over I think we have a case like that. Yeah, but all the courses I teach. I show real case studies. I actually really do practice and I actually do really see chronic patients. So, you know, um, I think that's important. <laughs> it's not, yeah, I, mean, yeah. I, I do research and I, and I review literature and I put together educational material, but I do really work with real patients. So, um, so there's always one or two or three cases in each of the courses I put together because I want people to know, like, this is how it really looks like. This is, this is how it is. And it's not this like fantasy world of nutrition. And uh, you got to like really pick up your clinical skills. You got to know your physical exam. You got to know your lab test. You, this isn't a game. This isn't. This isn't like just memorize a bunch of nutritional theories mm -hmm. and then do it. Like that's where you get the worst kind of care. You know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I had a look at that case study, and um, I was yeah um, amazed at the the depth of the neurological examinations you were going to. And I was thinking, why, why are you doing all these detailed <laughs> examinations? Then, then you get towards the end, it's like, ah, okay, now I see it's early neurodegenerative disease. No wonder you've, you, you had those sort of, um, flags in the back of your mind to do those investigations. Um, the other one that struck me was the, um, traumatic brain injury and its role in potentially causing gut issues. Can you describe that? Yeah, and I actually published a paper on this uh, traumatic brain injury and the impact on the brain gut access. I can send it to you if you yeah. want. Uh, but anyways, uh, if you look at the literature review of all the things that are out there, about a third of people that have traumatic brain injuries end up with dysautonomia. So dysautonomia is basically imbalance between the sympathetic and parasympathetic system. So as the brain normally fires and functions, it activates the pontomedullary areas of the brainstem. Those pontomedullary areas have parasympathetic nuclei and areas in the top of the midbrain have the sympathetic areas and they try to integrate function there. But people that get traumatic brain injuries, many of the times they get dysautonomias and those dysautonomias have direct impacts on the gut. So that'll impact everything again from motility, uh, movement, contraction of small muscles, contraction of the gallbladder. It'll impact uh, autonomics like blood flow to the gut so the gut can repair and heal. It'll impact um, enzyme output, autonomic function via the vagus to the gut. And studies done in animals are mind-blowing because they show within like an hour and a half that the gut mm -hmm. totally destroyed, <laughs> and like yeah. uh, injured the animal's brain. And, and I don't know how they get these through, through you know, these animal review boards, but there's, there's plenty of these studies published. They cause brain injury and then they can start 
doing a microscopic evaluation in the gut and just see that gut deteriorate away. And it doesn't take much time. And within like three days, their entire gut barrier is gone. Wow. And the other thing is that when you get a traumatic brain injury, there's an immediate release of um, zonulin from glial cells in the brain. Hmm. But those zonulin is also released in the gut because hmm. you, once you have an injury in the brain, your blood brain barrier has to open up normally to allow T cells to come in to get rid of those injuries. Ah. So that mechanism of opening up the blood-brain barrier has an effect on opening up the gut barrier. And uh, there's lots of associations with gut barrier permeability and blood-brain barrier permeability. Uh, we published a paper, I think two years ago, where we showed we took a couple hundred patients with uh, intestinal autoimmunity, intestinal inflammation, and showed they pretty much all have, <laughs> or majority have blood-brain barrier permeability compared to controls. Wow. Huge statistical significance between the two. So you kind of get one, you kind of get both. So it's, it's a vicious cycle. These people get traumatic brain injuries. They get a the majority of them get dysautonomia. Some get intestinal permeability. The blood brain barrier opens up. They get in a state of chronic inflammation. And there's a concept called neuroglia priming where glial cells in the brain, which are these immune cells of the brain, they get set into what's called an M1 phenotype where they're yep. overreactive and they stay overreactive after the injury. And any trivial inflammation keeps them activated. So these neuroglial cells constantly cause neuroinflammation. And when these neuroglial cells get activated, any trivial inflammation causes devastating effects where the brain injury was. So let's say they had a frontal lobe injury and now they can't focus and concentrate and have issues with attention. Now they eat. So let's say something they're sensitive to like milk, right? And casein and milk activates their inflammation. All of a sudden, they, they can't focus, and the concentration is dramatically worse, maybe for two or three days. Someone else may have got a uh, cerebellar injury, and now they have dizziness and vertigo, and those glial cells are primed. They get exposed to milk, and now they have a vertigo episode because <laughs> those glial cells are so close to activation after the injury that mm -hmm. then they stay in that state permanently that now they have these inflammatory systemic reactions, and then it's that's so traumatic brain injury is this whole separate issue actually I, for the crossing institute i wrote a whole course on neuroinflammation because mm -hmm. i needed two full days to explain wow. these mechanisms right yeah and then we yeah. got to the gut and then and then the gut module i i talked about the gut and a little bit about the brain but if you put both those courses together you kind of see the depth of the interrelationships so when would you suspect or investigate um a, a gut patient um, has some traumatic brain injury, what sort of symptoms or is it a, looking at the past history of concussions and so forth? Well, I think they're going to present like the person that has an enteric nervous system failing we talked about. They're right. going to have vagus. So the cortex basically fires the vagus, the vagus fires into the gut, right? So when the cortex is injured, there's decreased activation of the vagus. It's just that simple. And these studies in animals clearly show that. And they also found that in one study where they damaged the cortex, if they went and immediately activated the vagus to electrical stimulation, their gut was totally healthy. Hmm. They didn't have any of the side effects of intestinal permeability and breakdown of the gut and dysautonomy in the gut and all the so forth. So we know it's directly brain injury to and decrease it to the vagus and then vagus to the gut. So the key thing is like you see someone that is the patient that's taken everything for their gut, <laughs> nothing is working. Their diet's clean. They're they're in there having and a key finding is they have motility issues. They're constantly constipated. They have to take stool softeners. They have to do enemas. They have to take any kind of uh, natural laxative on a regular basis to function. Um, and then you see the people do the swallowing again. Like you listen to their gut, it's not working well. You look at their palate, it's not right. working well. 
And then you go deeper and go, well, one, there's only two, two major possibilities there. Either there's neurodegeneration in the gut, like early Parkinson's disease or Alzheimer's disease, but most commonly Parkinson's, or there's an injury to the brain. And then you go and dig deeper. And then it turns out, yeah, they did get a brain injury, but it was like four years ago, they were in a pretty bad car accident mm-hmm. or they were, they used to do, they used to box and they had a career of boxing for a while and they had been knocked out quite a few times. And then you see that neuroglia connection where inflammation just shuts down the brain. Uh, and then you have that clear brain gut access, I guess. Yeah, fascinating. Um, do you, what about um, if someone has a concussion, are there other things we can do in functional medicine to maybe prevent that? And we had um, Professor um, Robert Vink from Adelaide once uh, at our Congress. He does research on um, magnesium and showed like early administration of magnesium is helpful. I'm also wondering now with um, the microglial uh, bias to the M1 state with like um, SPM, specialized pro-resolving mediators might help. Any Anything that can help, do you think, acutely to maybe prevent these serious oh, issues later on? Yeah, absolutely. So magnesium for sure has an impact on the NMDA receptor. So the NMDA receptor doesn't get into an excitotoxic state because uh, yeah. of generation. And then researchers have also published uh, with acute brain injuries, progesterone has a huge impact. Mm. So progesterone, uh, both males and females, uh, yeah. and uh, even DHEA, both of those have been shown in uh, emergency medicine journals where they administer those, the subjects recover much faster. So the, the progesterone and DHEA uh, decrease the inflammatory microglial response. So they have a very direct effect on the inflammation in the brain. And then um, hyperbaric chambers is, is something you definitely want to do in the acute stages. The first six months, the sooner the better. And that'll really help push oxygen deep in the tissues and slow down that that uh, hypoxic uh, excitotoxic model of the NMDA receptor like magnesium is doing. So uh, hyperbaric chamber, progesterone, DHA, magnesium, those would be all good ideas. Things like uh, Hawthorne extract, Vinpocetine, Ginkgo, those all have been shown to help with recovery of the brain, get blood flow. Uh, Essential fatty acids at gram levels, like uh, gram levels of fish oils, DHA, EPA. All all of that I just said is published in the peer-reviewed literature. So that would be a good protocol <laughs> in, the, in the acute stages. Yeah. Now, once it's chronic, it's a whole different scenario. Once you go ah. past that window and those glial cells are primed, yep. they have to get rid of those glial cells. And those glial cells, there's only one way we know to get rid of them, which is to activate autophagy. And that's where they have to get into intermittent fasting. And that's mm-hmm. really the only way to get rid of those uh, cells. Okay. So, and then ketogenic diets on the way to intermittent fasting, raise ketones that's been shown to dampen inflammation. And then once people get into ketosis, it's really much easier for them to do intermittent fasting. So then that's kind of the process. So. Interesting. Wow, fascinating. Um, and finally, uh, maybe overlooked fact, you, you touched upon it, um, gut autoimmunity. Um, what does that look like and how, how would that change your approach from a, your sort of regular SIBO or, or something like that? So gut autoimmunity is the same thing. Patient comes in and nothing fixes their gut. Like, you know, a lot of times you look at the list of people a patient's seen and you go, they're pretty skilled. Like, yeah, like this is, they're not amateurs here. They, they've seen some really great people, but you see like maybe they haven't gotten a little bit, they haven't gotten deep enough. So, it's, you know, all these unresponsive guts aren't always neurodegenerative issues or brain gut access to TBIs. Actually, more common of the fact is that they have intest- intestinal autoimmunity. And since people don't always check for that, that can be missed. So intestinal immunity, the immune system, it gets activated, it's destroying the gut. <laughs> 
you know, the obvious one is like celiac disease, but then you have Crohn's, you have ulcerative colitis. And, uh, you know, when you suspect someone is having an autoimmune response to gut, um, you can then run autoantibodies, AS, uh, ASCA antibodies, ANCA antibodies, tropomycin antibodies, uh, transglutaminase antibodies. Those would be, you know, the most common markers that would show up with, with intestinal autoimmunity. And if those markers are positive, then you're dealing with a patient that every time their immune system gets activated, um, they're having gut inflammation. So it could be a relationship issue. They got in a fight with their spouse. That was pretty serious. Now their gut is totally flared up. Mm. It could be um, lack of sleep triggered their immune response. It doesn't always have to be food at that point. And this is why some practitioners are so frustrated because they're, they're going, I don't understand. Their diet's so clean. Or the patient's frustrated. They're like, I didn't eat anything wrong. Yeah. They're used to condition to thinking something they ate flared up their gut. But once it becomes intestinal autoimmune, auto, an autoimmune response, anything that triggers the immune response can trigger the gut. They could, they could walk into an environment with really bad air pollution that day. And if, let's say they also have a leaky pulmonary barrier, that air pollutant compound can be what triggers their intestinal autoimmune hmm. inflammatory response. And that's, that's because when it changes everything. And now that patient needs to be managed from an autoimmune perspective. Yeah. Now, all these patients that have these chronic gut issues, they're still are going to need enzymes and probiotics and things just to maintain their function. But then the mindset changes, like these are there to maintain your function. Let's go and really go deeper into the autoimmune side of this or the brain recovery part of this or whatever it may be. Yeah, right. Um, and just sort of whilst on immune system, I just I, th- I think I saw you mentioned somewhere. Um, uh, have you seen any... Um, effects of COVID um, or long COVID on, on gut health. I know there's there's some suggestions about COVID. What's what's your sort of stance at the moment? Well, we actually did it as a research study for 14 months. We published it in Frontiers in Immunology, which is the fourth ranked immunology journal in the world, where we took uh, the COVID, the SARS-CoV-2 proteins. There are envelope proteins. There's nuclear proteins. There is the you know uh, spike protein. And ultimately, there's 24 different proteins. And we took each of those 24 proteins and uh, uh, we then like checked for molecular mimicry with uh, 50, 60 autoimmune target proteins, almost 60 autoimmune target proteins. And then we mapped those out to look at the, the amino acid sequence. And then we actually did laboratory analysis to see what cross-reacts. And uh, all the proteins, spike, nuclear, envelope, membrane, have significant degree of uh, cross-reactivity. So I, 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 without doubt, and then we published a paper, we're like, listen, some, some people get exposed to this virus in combination with them having what's called loss of immune tolerance, because that's the other part of this. It's not just the infection, but also if their immune system tolerance is also off, they could be at significant risk for autoimmunity turning on. And right. the target proteins that we found were most were basically most, most tissues in the body but a high amount in the brain. And many of those are also target the enteric nervous system of the gut. Um, and uh, I think a lot of long COVID syndrome patients may have autoimmunity. Some of them have other mechanisms, but, and now more and more papers are really exploding currently this, even this past two months on the role between autoimmunity. So I think uh, for some patients, as they get exposed to some of those proteins, those proteins may be from infection. Some people may get exposed to them from vaccination, right? Vaccinations for some small groups do turn on autoimmunity. That's been reported for every vaccine developed. Mm. Um, but a subset of people will have an adverse effect to one or the other. 
uh, and then develop autoimmunity. And some of them, the autoimmunity will be directly in the gut or brain gut access, and uh, they'll end up with chronic gut gut issues. But then you know, you just check their autoantibodies for their gut, <laughs> see if they're elevated. Okay, thank you. Um, so now let's say we've ruled out some of these more insidious or um, distal issues and we've got your more, dare I say, garden variety gut issues. Um, you mentioned up front that the, the north to south approach. Um, can we, yeah, just step through that and um, first of all, why it's important that you mentioned at the start, like um, often practitioners are, are, you know, understandably allured to the microbiome and it's all new and there's all these species and so forth, but um, they're often, I suppose, the, the consequence of the, the terrain and the functioning up above. So, yeah, can you step through your sort of thought process of the north to south and we might sort of um, put the spotlight on some of the organs? Yeah, I think I think it's important to mention a few things. So I think one of the problems we have is we don't have a – I think especially in functional medicine and even in the world of clinical nutrition – is we have lots of theories and lots of philosophies. So it's like theory and philosophy drives the protocol mm. or we have bias from the personal, the practitioner, their bias is driving the protocol, but it's not a systematic work through every piece of this piece by piece by piece by piece and diff die each part of the things that can go wrong and then think about what intervention to do. So that's, that's the difference. That's the difference between a skilled functional medicine approach versus a beginner, right? Beginner is going to be like, oh, everyone's got the key on. I'm just going to start there. And you hit and miss. Some may, some improvements, some don't, right? And then, uh, but it's still inefficient, right? So ultimately, you want to be as efficient as possible in your workup. So like in the Crossing to GI course, and the way I teach practitioners, and I only teach practitioners this way because, you know, after as you continue to fail in your practice over time, you keep looking at your model and going, what's mm. wrong with the model? And then you start to get more efficient. So basically, um, the protocols I teach is, or the models I've learned over time, and and, uh, and and for me, I practice, but I also read a lot of research, so I can kind of. And then when you practice, you know what kind of research to look for, and then when you do research, you know what kind of research to do because you know you practice. You want to yeah, yeah. That that's really important. Those connections, but you know, first of all, it starts with swallowing. It starts with actually producing saliva. So, do they smell? They produce saliva. You know, do you look at someone's mouth? Do they have saliva? Like someone who has very poor saliva, the biggest thing is the people with family members can tell them they take forever eating. Mm-hmm. And if you don't produce saliva, it takes you forever to swallow and chew your food. So you see, you know, some patients have medications that really impact on their swallowing. That's going to totally throw off their gut from that point on. Some patients have like Sjogren's disease or autoimmune disease where the saliva ducts aren't producing saliva. And some of those patients, they take a, if they can take a, like a saliva tablet, it'll immediately change their gut function from that point on because wow. it's just start the digestive process happening, right? And then uh, and I'm sure family members will be happy. It doesn't take them two hours to eat. So uh, so that's one part. And then the act of not just producing saliva, but the act of actually swallowing, that's where the like vagus comes in. And then once food gets pre-produced saliva and, and then you swallow, and then it's right, first thing is hydrochloric acid. Do they have proper acidity there? Because hydrochloric acid has to then immediately change the pH of the contents of food going into the small intestine. And if that pH isn't changed by hydrochloric acid, then you can't activate gallbladder contraction and pancreatic enzyme release, right? So you would never like jump into the gallbladder issue without fixing hypochlorogen, mm-hmm. right? And then the pH of 
those digestive enzymes will then change the pH of the microbiome. And then the microbiome has the environment to grow or not grow. So let's say someone had hypochlorhydria issues where they're just not making enough hydrochloric acid, right? For whatever reason right now, we'll just say they have a mechanism causing it. And they also have some subtle gallbladder issues where they just, over time, their bile has gotten a little sluggish, you know, very common in females over 40 and males that obesity or diabetes, they just get slow, they get impaired gallbladder metabolism issues. So now they have a little bit of gallbladder sludge, liberal hypochlorhydria, they have a chronic gut issue. And the practitioner just jumps to probiotics and jumps to leaky gut. That case is going to 100% fail because they didn't address their underlying gallbladder issues and address their hypochlorhydria. So, the, so when physiology and the gut works north to south, where you have to acidify the gut and release enzymes to then change the microbiome, then you have those effects. And then even in the course we talk about, you know, the gallbladder is really important because bile that's released isn't just to break down fats. Bile is actually a signaling compound. Mm. And bile receptors are found all throughout the microbiome. So bile actually activates FXR receptors and G-coupled proteins, and then they modulate the microbiome. <laughs> So when people really have like gallbladder issues, as an example, it's going to be very, very hard to reestablish healthy microbiome function because they're not getting one of their most important slithering agents released. So that's the concept of north to south and not just jumping to the microbiome right away or not just jumping to leaky gut, but really going through each of the steps one by one and then clinically evaluating each part of those steps to see the, see what's happening. Excellent. Um, leaky gut, I wanted to, um, pause and, and look at it. it's something that we've um, looked at recently and um, yeah it's there's obviously a lot of nuance to it um, we had Dr. Emin Quigley on there and there's been some papers questioning is it a sort of cause or consequence um, oh, yeah. I, sorry yeah. yeah intestinal permeability yeah yeah, yeah. Um, I think yeah naturopaths and, and clinicians often sometimes by the default think yeah leaky gut is the cause and if you zip up the tight junctions then then um, you know all of autoimmunity will improve, but you know there's also research that suggests that the inflammation itself is causing that the leakiness. How do you, what's your sort of um, yeah? Where, where do you sit on the, the leaky gut spectrum, and how do you sort of approach it? Oh, it's for sure. It's both. It's bi-directional. I mean, it's 100% bi-directional. Okay, so and this is why some people get stuck in chronically gut patterns, and there's going to be some people you will never a- be able to fix their leaky gut but you should maintain it and they're always going to have ongoing issues with it. So, you know, the, the basic model is you get a leaky gut and let's say someone went on heavy antibiotics for a while, bad diet, dysbiosis, their tight junctions were com- compromised. Then that led into autoimmunity. And that has been proven in animal models in, mm. in animal models of research. They've clearly shown they can induce autoimmunity with zonulin and then type one diabetes develops in animals. So that, that is in animal models clearly been published. There's no way they're going to go past that in humans because of, ethics right they're not going to inject the salt and then someone have a leaky gut happen um and then see if they develop an autoimmune disease from it that, that would never be approved but in animal models with the same kind of tight junction proteins that we have and that, that these are done pigs uh, it's really clear that that model that that me- mechanism has been established but on the other hand oxidative stress breaks down tight junctions like uh if you have someone who's got uncontrolled Blood sugar issues, their HbA1c is high. Uh, glycosid end products directly destroy tight junction proteins. If you have some with autoimmunity, the inflammation from autoimmunity will break down those tight junctions. Um, so uh, the tight junction proteins, you know, are very vulnerable and they're very sensitive. So you you do have uh, conditions like intestinal autoimmunity. They're always going to have some degree of permeability. 
If someone has Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis, um, as soon as their immune system gets triggered, they're going to have inflammation that's going to break down those tight junction proteins. And you need to know that as a clinician, because if you're like working with a person with intestinal autoimmunity and you go, hey, I'm going to put you on a leaky gut protocol. And like in six weeks, eight weeks, you should be feeling a lot better and you should be able to eat foods again. And your lab tests are all going to come back normal. Like you're going to look really bad. Mm. That's not going to happen. <laughs> Versus you go, hey, you have intestinal autoimmunity. Leaky gut's going to be an ongoing battle for you. And we're going to have to constantly support your leaky gut. And when you're, when you're more inflamed and more triggers have happened, you probably really want to make sure you're not missing your support and maybe increasing your dosage of stuff. And if your diet's really clean and you go into remission, you make, you can probably back off on some of it, but let your body decide, see how you feel and kind of work through it. But this is going to be an ongoing battle for you because your condition is going to constantly promote this intestinal permeability response. And then the intestinal permeability response is going to flare up your autoimmune. So this is a vicious cycle. And that, that understanding as a practitioner communicates with the patient completely changes everything. Right. And that's important. So it's a bi-directional mechanism. Yeah. Um, and also the vagal nerve you've mentioned many times, obviously it's critical. Um, you, you sometimes suggest activities and exercises. We also had, I think you might be a colleague of yours, Dr. Taylor Crick, um, who we did a podcast on the transcutaneous vagal nerve stimulation with like the TENS machine. Um, so I was just curious on your thoughts on, you know, uh, methods and, and ways of, um, activating the vagal nerve. Um, what's in your toolkit and how to use them? It's very simple. It's a gargle of water. Yeah. It's a glass of water and gargle. And as you gargle, you activate your palatine muscles in the back of your throat. Those palatine muscles are innervated by glossopharyngeal nerve and vagus nerve. As you activate those, you activate the rest of the vagus. We, we actually talked about that in the GI course. Um, so really aggressive gargling, like really aggressive gargling yeah. from the <laughs> Yeah, I start to tear. That's going to start activating that vagal pathway. Wow. People that have neurodegeneration or brain trauma will have them like take a glass like this and fill it all the way up, and then gargle through it. Might take them like five minutes to go through through it, and might do that three times a day. Uh-huh. And, and then that's actually activating the vagus. As the vagus is activated, it's getting mitochondrial biogenesis, and it's getting uh, neuronal branching developing, and then those pathways can come back. So uh, that's really one of the most effective ways without having to buy a lot of crazy equipment and hang on yep. these things. Yep. And it's actually very specific to not to the vagal motor nuclei that's impacting gut because ah. it's the, the glossopharyngeal muscles that are being activated, which is what, so, so the minute you swallow, you actually activate your vagus. Yeah. Uh, right. So, but that happens because the minute you swallow, you're activating your glossopharyngeal and vagal palatine muscles. Right. Right. So, and as you activate those muscles, they reflexively will also activate the nucleus ambiguous, others, the vagus, which increase enzymes and blood flow to the gut. So it's very specific. I, w- I, w- I, would, I wouldn't use any device. I would just use a glass of water. Fair I mean, enough. it's so easy. It's so effective. And, yeah. And, yeah. and it works great. <laughs> Excellent. Um, and finally now, yeah, the microbiome, sort of the, the lower layer. So when would you look at sort of diversity composition? Um, I suppose when we look at microbes, even, um, you know, breath testing for the small intestine, where, where does it sit in your sort of hierarchy of, of monitoring? Well, first of all, hierarchy of diet, a part of the web is like way up there because, you know, it's so essential for health and function. And even with the human microbiome project where they have spent, uh, I don't know, close to a billion dollars, 
looking at myobacrobiome research and making tools available for scientists to look at the microbiome, there, there has been an explosion of the microbiome connection to every chronic disease mm. in the scientific literature at this point. It's an area of fascination with the scientists now. Like all the hot new papers and journals like diabetes are all about the microbiome diabetes connection. And even in neurology journals, it's all about the gut and how it impacts the brain and cognitive function and depression and MS. Like, so all, all these scientists are now really fascinated by this microbiome connection. And so we're getting a, a lot of research being published on it. But the interesting thing is when they looked at the human microbiome project, they couldn't find one specific strain of probiotics that was really good or even bacteria species that were really bad. Mm. And it's really, but the key thing they could find was diversity. So it really is all about diversity, right? So how diverse the gut is, is critical for health. And even some some leading um, scientists have pointed out, like, uh, when you do a physical exam in the future, the microbiome diversity index should be as important as blood pressure or cholesterol, because it's going to determine <laughs> your ability to stay healthy. And I'm like, that's fascinating. Maybe someday we'll get there. <laughs> yeah. Most of practitioners are doing all the time. So the microbiome diversity is really critical. So that's for sure. The issue is, like, why is the microbiome not diverse, right? And They've shown like sedentary lifestyle impacts your microbiome, that exercise actually improves your microbiome mm. diversity. Hormones improve your microbiome diversity. Uh, blood sugar stability impacts your microbiome diversity. Your vagus activation improves your microbiome diversity. So it's like a multifactorial thing. And north to south is important too. So it's it's something you should definitely look at as a biomarker and then and then think about how you can change it. Like diverse diet is a really good way to look at it. There are lots of diverse vegetable fibers can impact the microbiome. But then I have autoimmune patients that go on a complete carnivore diet. Yeah. And the microbiome diversity completely changes. Yeah. In a yeah. positive way. So, it's, so it, there's a lot of variables that, to be quite honest, we don't all understand. <laughs> we know there's individual reactions to various things. Like why would someone that's just eating nothing but meat and no vegetables and no fiber all of a sudden have their microbiome diversity restored? So it's influence of probably insulin and hormones and other growth mm. factors that are not being released with their gene type that's making their microbiome change. And for someone else, they have to really increase their fiber intake and lots of different vegetables and fruits and work north to south to finally get their microbiome to change. For someone else, until their hormone levels change, their microbiome is not going not gonna to change. So micro, 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 microbiome diversity is not easy to change <laughs> in chronic patients. Yeah. But it becomes a very great window to look at to see their health recovery and the potential to, to you know, break out of their condition. So, it's yeah. uh, it's yeah. not it's not easy to do. It's like you don't just go microbiome diversity and go, here's my probiotics. Yeah, yeah. It's not that yeah. simple. Um, so out of curiosity, then a couple of the more sort of extreme ways of increasing diversity is um, fecal microbiome transplantation, and um, I know some functional medicine practitioners also. Um, curious and interested in helmet therapy, particularly for autoimmunity. What's your yeah. um, thoughts on those those two? They have their role. I mean, they have their impact. So with fecal transplants, you know, they first did these in mice and they found some really fascinating outcomes with like uh, body composition and body weight and size. And then personality and mood of mice changed completely with fecal transplants. Then they actually did a human trial with uh, fecal transplants in Germany where they were looking at obesity and they did fecal transplants in humans and they lost weight and the blood sugar levels normalized, but it didn't last. Mm. So 
it doesn't, so like you can change your, if you did a fecal transplant, you can change the microbiome environment for a period of time, but all the metabolic factors that are impacting your microbiome eventually kick in and you kind of go back to where you were. Back to your set point. So yeah. um, it definitely has its role. Like people that have um, non uh, strains of, of uh, infections where they're not responding to antibiotics. So those fecal transplants are very effective for that. That's being used more and more in conventional hospital settings with uh, non-responsive strains. So in an acute stage where someone's really inf- like can't get their infection under control, that's what's being used in a conventional hospitals right now, which is fascinating. And FDA is approving that, that type of therapy. So it has a place for, I think, an acute response for chronic disease. Like that's an issue. There are people that are selling their fecal samples here in the U.S., the chronic patients. And these are people that are eating really, really he- healthy diets and selling their wow. materials. <laughs> and chronic patients are using, are using huh. it. And they, just, you know, they just basically, it's pretty simple. They, they put it in a blender and put some water, wow. put an enema and do an enema. That's, that's what they do yeah. in, in the real world, right? So I think uh, it's interesting. So I think uh, just the research so far with fecal transplants shows how powerful it can ha- impact your microbiome could have on your health. But as far as the clinical scenario, it's not going to have long-term effects. You're going to have to go back and fix on the underlying things mm-hmm. anyways. But mm-hmm. acute stages, it may be very effective. Yeah. And as far as helmet therapy, that is fascinating research. And uh, there's definitely s- some factors that parasites and helmets release that have been shown to calm down autoimmunity and turn on regulatory T cells. And Schofenfield in Israel identified that chemical compound and they are doing trials now uh, and with animal studies and they're reversing autoimmune disease in some animal studies with the helmet uh, uh, compound that's that's being released that they synthesize in the lab. So that might be a breakthrough drug for autoimmunity, but uh, it's very exciting to hear about it. So yeah. Um, You've never been tempted to, um, uh, prescribe and administer helmets. I don't administer them, but I have referred out some okay. autoimmune patients for them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, and uh, you, know, you just drink it. It's just no big deal. It's a vial. Drink it. It's no different than drinking a probiotic or something. And uh, for some people, it's it's has an impact, and for some people, it's like no impact. Any particular autoimmune disease that seems to be um, been more beneficial for? Um, well, the, some of the published stuff has really been done with, a, a, a autoimmune alopecia where they have hair uh, fall colors. Yeah. A lot of that was done with really great work with Sydney Baker. Uh, and, uh, I, I, I don't know of the pattern of which autoimmune disease would be more specific or not. Uh, and it's not my first line therapy because it's, it's like when you, for me, it's when you get desperate. I'm like, okay, yeah. I'm not sure where to go. How extreme do you want to push this? And these are your options. And some yeah, people sure. will be like, I don't care. I'll try it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fair enough. I mean, if you're not getting response and it might provide benefit. All right. Um, so I think, yeah, we've covered it, all the, the key areas from north to south. So just to sort of, yeah, wrap up, um, that's just a, a, a putting our time in the water of your institute and the, the module. So, yeah, any sort of final remarks around um, your approach or the and, and the module? I would just say, if you're, if you're practicing functional medicine, you got to realize it's not about just finding things and just throwing supplements. It's really about learning a very efficient hierarchy of clinical evaluation, a step by step by approach to know exactly what to look for in the history what to look for in the physical exam, what to look for in labs, and then determining your protocol 
based on your evaluation, but not based on your bias, based on any philosophy of nutrition is really the most efficient way to deal with chronic disease patients. So um, the Karate Institute course on the gastrointestinal tract, we, tr- we, we go through that. And then we also discuss there's some conditions that are never going to be cured by dietary and lifestyle for the gut. You need to know this as a clinician so you don't burn out. And then you know what the patient can expect, right? So like you're never going to really completely fix the leaky gut with an intestinal autoimmune patient, but it's going to be an ongoing issue that needs support for. So knowing those types of relationships completely changes your game uh, and your relationship, developing protocols and communicating with your patients. So you definitely want to make sure that you, you're aware of those. And, um, you know, going through uh, going through that, that, that very step-by-step clinical process just just increases your clinical outcomes. It's just that simple. So, so you, you, I think there's a point where you want to you want to invest your time and energy and in, in thinking about not, not what's new, but how to prioritize, and then how to go through the the process. That's 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 the level where most advanced functional medicine really start to shine with their clinical outcomes. When if when people first start, they're like, oh my god, there's leaky gut, and oh my goodness, there's all these different types of probiotics. But, but the next level is how do you how do you then know how to implement? which and at what step perfect um so the the Karazin institute i've looked into the the gut module there's a, a comprehensive autoimmune module what what else uh, is on there so the Karazin institute has uh, 18 programs we're on module uh we're on module nine we'll have 200 hours wow. uh, and then we are adding a, a 100 hour clinical ground rounds uh next year so this is where I'm basically uh, taping complex cases in my practice and, and showing people the exam and as if they were doing, as if they came into my office doing ground rounds. So we're taping the medical history, we're taping interviews, we're showing all the patients' labs, we're showing their exam findings, we're showing to a treatment plan, we're doing follow-ups because ground rounds are critical for learning mm. functional medical skills too. So overall, we, we have a 300-hour program designed and... Uh, 200 hours from courses and 100 hours from grand rounds and clinical cases of real patients, not like theoretical. And and some of these patients we completely I completely fail with. That's okay, but I want people to see failures. Mm-hmm. I want to, and it's okay for me to get to, to share that vulnerability and then also get input from people in our community. Hey, you should have done this. <laughs> but it's important to to see the reality of it versus like everything's a rainbow, everything's perfect. That's not how real practice is. So. Um, Right now, uh, you know, the modules are all independent of each other. You don't have to take one versus the other. Like we have one on autoimmunity, one on GI. Uh, we did one on cognitive decline. We did one on energy and pain syndromes. So if you go to the Karate Institute website, you'll see 18 different courses. So we're at number nine now, which I think childhood development and will be in the future. And then from that list, you can see the order. But um, if you take a look of the top 20 conditions that, People go to healthcare practitioners for, they're all covered in that, in our program. Uh, right. Right. And then review the literature with actual real case scenarios where you see these things implemented. Because the problem is when you teach a course, like let's say in the gut, we teach a course on autoimmunity. In a real clinical setting, you're going to use bits and pieces of parts of each one of those. <laughs> yeah, true. Be exactly like the course is taught. And that's where ground rounds become useful. Yeah. Um, what sort of clinicians do you find sign up for these? What sort of modalities and... So in our, in our community right now, we have 3,000 healthcare professionals from all over the world. And uh, we have 
everything from conventional MDDOs, chiropractors, naturopaths, nutritionists. Um, it's intensive. So it depends on where a person's at. You know, yeah. you could, uh, we do a very thorough review of the literature and then we'd go into run into clinical, clinical workups. So uh, all, everyone is welcome to take it. It's just a matter of they want to. <laughs> this is what they're looking for, right? Yeah. And there's CPD points for certain modalities as well. There's, I'm sorry? CPD points, like the continual education points. Is- well, we haven't, we, you know, we're in the US, yes, but uh, yeah. in, uh, in Australia, we're, we're, we're just starting to uh, get, 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 our, get our institute into the community there. Yep. So no problem. Uh, but for the US, we've, we have a, a significant amount of US listeners. So, um, yeah. yeah, it's encouraging there. And yeah, hopefully we can spread the word about your institute here down under. Um, yeah, Dr. Christian, it's been an absolute pleasure. It's, I've been wanting to talk to you for many years. I think I, I saw you present at the A4M in 2019, just before COVID kicked off, and it was standing room only. I, I tried to approach you, but it was about 40 people deep. So <laughs> I ended up giving up. And um, uh, But I'm glad that I finally got to connect with you. And it's, um, yeah, it certainly didn't disappoint. The uh, amount of knowledge is incredible, the, the detail, and just to rattle it all off, off script as well. Um, yeah, kudos to you. Well done on the institutes. Yeah, I can't recommend it highly enough. It's so comprehensive. Um, yeah, I just encourage listeners to, to have a look and, and try a module. Yeah, thank you so much. It's a pleasure meeting you. Too. Pleasure. For useful links and resources, make sure you check out the show notes. The information provided in this episode is for educational purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for health and medical care always consult a healthcare professional for medical advice.